I grew up in Indianapolis in uh, this kind of idyllic, incredible neighborhood. You know, it was the height of the baby boom. So there's like 20,000 kids in our neighborhood. It was just, you know, just amazing. So much fun, bicycles and baseballs. And there wasn't very, very little crime. You know, just everything, you know, was wonderful in many, many ways. In fact, I've told people that people write books about the kind of neighborhood I grew up in. And I just loved it. It was amazing. But, and, and, and my parents, uh, I'm grateful for the way they raised us. And uh, I was actually raised Catholic and I, I went uh, to uh, Our Lady of Greenwood School. And um, you know what? That was, that was a great experience for me. And, but behind all of that, unseen to most people, uh, there, was, there, was, there were some challenges. Uh, my parents uh, split up when I was three years old. Uh, my mom raised us, all seven of us, ages three through uh, 14, as a single mom. And dad moved to Europe. And then dad came uh, back into our, our lives. He moved back to the United States when I was 10 years old. And uh, I didn't realize as a child, you know, what exactly everything that was happening. To me, it was just the way life was. But underlying all that, this was kind of stressful, apparently. And... Um, I, I kind of came to a greater realization. I, I had a good relationship with my mother and my father, um, but I remember sitting in seventh grade, I think it was, in my classroom, looking around the classroom, and I was just, you know, I was a good student. I had a lot of friends, you know, played sports, did fun things. And, um, but I remember looking around the classroom and I was different in one very significant way than all the rest of the students. And that was that my parents were divorced. Now, that's much more common these days, of course. That's a very common experience. But back in those days, in the mid-70s, uh, in, in a Catholic school, that was just not a deal. I just was the only one there. And, uh, and I remember this thought coming into my mind. And I don't think it came from a good place. And the thought was... Quentin, you should hate your father and be disappointed in your mother. And then, in that moment, a voice, it wasn't audible, but it might as well have been, said, Quentin, how would that help you? I believe God spoke to me. Not in an audible way, but there was a voice from another place that was taking me to a place that I didn't need to go, didn't, shouldn't go. It wasn't my parents were perfect, but I mean, they had challenges. My dad was gone a lot. Um, and for four years of my life, he was not, didn't even live in the country. My mother struggled with alcoholism for 25 years. Um, both of them, praise God, came to know Jesus in a very personal way in their 80s. But God spoke to me in that moment. And I really, truly believe, even though I didn't really have a personal knowing and following of Jesus yet, God was protecting me and he was showing me a better way, a better path. And, and guys, um, today I want to talk to you about this concept of don't give the enemy a seat at your table. It's actually a title uh, I more or less stole from Louis Giglio's book by that title. Um, and uh, 
it, it, just even the title struck me when I saw it and then I began to read through it. Just amazing concept of, you know, there, there is, there is, there's God at work in our lives, but there's also temptation when hard situations come our way that we go to a wrong place. We go to a, uh, a darker place or, or we come up with self-justifying rationalizations about why this is the right thing to do. And he tells a story in the book about he was ready to just send off this kind of self-justifying email after he had been attacked and he shared it with a friend and the friend said a nine-word response. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. In other words, don't invite him to sit at your table and give him that space in your life. Instead, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd and he has prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I want to take you to Proverbs with that kind of overarching uh, thought in mind. Uh, and we're going to come to Proverbs chapter 12. Now, frequently, the book of Proverbs offers us contrasting choices. And I have, you know, two choices here. There's the table the Lord has prepared for us. And then there's the table we prepare that we sometimes invite the enemy to sit with. And this contrasting choices are between wisdom and foolishness, good and evil, productive and destructive, peace and chaos, success and failure. And contrast is a primary way of learning the way of Jesus in the book of Proverbs. And Jesus is the wisdom of God. So today, let's intentionally stroll through some of Proverbs 12's Proverbs to identify how to cancel the lies that are going to wreck your life, take empowering steps to live fully in Christ, stop the spiral of temptation and insecurity, restore peace and rest in our lives, embrace the true purpose and life behind your journey through those challenging hard circumstances, and break free from the endless cycle of destructive thinking and self-sabotage that so many of us get on. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Don't entertain his ideas. These thoughts, says Louis Giglio, these thoughts are not from a good and trustworthy shepherd. Move on. David tells us in Psalm 23 that the good shepherd prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemy. We're tempted to set our own table and then give the enemy a seat with us. But remember, he's a killer. He's a liar, a thief, and a destroyer, and an accuser. Don't take his bait. The devil wants nothing more to, than to crush you. He wants to steal from you everything of value. He wants to kill everything in life that's good to you for you. Ultimately, he wants to destroy you. He can claim the victory over your mind. He can eventually claim the victory over your life. So the good shepherd invites us to his table, and Satan is invited to that one. Jesus came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And Proverbs gives us all these contrasts to help us sit down at the table of the Lord rather than setting our own table and then giving a seat to the enemy. These, by the way, are not always gigantic spiritual showdowns between good and evil, at least on the surface. Often they are subtle and confusing and tempting and deceiving. But if we choose to listen to the voice of truth, to the good shepherd, God will guide us into all truth by his Holy Spirit. So today, listen to the Spirit of God, not the passions of the moment, the winds of culture, the temptations of the flesh, the thoughts of mere humans. Instead, listen to the good shepherd's voice in his word. These five contrasts I'm going to give to you and then one climactic truth at the end. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Beware. These are so common, you might be tempted to think they're not important. Or I already knew that. That's great. I'm glad we already know that. But the question is, do you do that? Do I do that? And 
That's important. God's not looking for my agreement. God's looking for my commitment. And when we commit to sitting at his table that he's prepared for us, it's life-giving and renewing. And honestly, sometimes he just sits me down at the table and he knows what I need. The Proverbs that we'll look at can be applied to any number of hard situations. It will help you to find encouragement, hope, and strength along your way. In the midst of your valley, don't, you don't need to listen to the voices of fear, rage, lust, insecurity, anxiety, despair, temptation, or defeat. Let's get started. The first contrast. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. For, but one who hates correction is stupid. Well, that's telling it like it is. If you love discipline, that means it's not punishment. It's correction. It's training. It's coaching. It's mentoring. It's constructive feedback. It's God allowing circumstances for us to learn lessons in life, oftentimes through consequences when we make bad choices. Then you lo- if you love and welcome correction and welcome coaching and mentoring, then you love getting wiser, he says. You love knowledge. You love knowing God more deeply. If you hate correction, he says, that's not smart. In fact, he says it's stupid. If your first impulse is always to push back on any kind of, you know, constructive feedback and show why I'm right, Solomon says, that's not wise. You're not helping yourself. You're actually hurting yourself. It's stupid. So don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Here's the contrast. We can choose either to be self-aware and teachable, open to the ways of God and to others that God uses to speak into our lives, or we can get defensive and in a very short-sighted way reject the very wisdom that would transform our lives. So if somebody comes or the scripture comes or a teacher comes or somebody who you respect and is godly, a parent, whatever it might be, and they come to you, do you just want to hear and listen? Are you listening to learn or are you just listening long enough forming your response to what they've said so you can push back? Is it I welcome it or is it insecurity and immediate defensiveness? Oftentimes we fall into this. You know, it's, it's a step process. Step one, we hear somebody say, you know, this is, you know, something that you need to improve. And we push back on that. Step one is, woe is me, I'm being picked on. Step two, I reject the correction out of hand. Step three, I prepare my comeback defense. Step four, uh, I share why they are wrong and here I am being offended. And step five is I seek allies who will back up my views. Okay, what have I learned? Nothing. Instead, what if I said, maybe there's something to learn here. How can I grow? If you love discipline, you love knowledge. Note it doesn't say if you tolerate it, endure it, or put up with it. But if you actually welcome feedback, even if it's not enjoyable or pleasant at the moment. I'm not talking about, by the way, welcoming pot shots or accepting verbal abuse. Not at all. That's at a different level. But not every correction is verbal abuse. Okay? Guys, we have generations of people who cannot accept even the most minimal of feedback. I don't want to hear it. Let's say you got some consistent feedback from maybe one or two people that are leaders in your life, that you have a certain trait or behavior that really needs to change, and you disagree with their perception of you. Well, Solomon's saying here, quit trying to disprove their wrong perception of you or quit trying to prove their perception wrong and start 
trying to learn why they have that perception. Why is it that they're telling me this? And at that moment, maybe they're right. Maybe they have a point. Maybe I'm just in the wrong spot. This isn't the best spot for me. I need to do something different. Maybe it just doesn't work. Maybe I need to change. Whatever it might be, you learn from that. You've learned something. Even in the worst circumstances, let's say you get fired. I was reading this week an interview with a prominent basketball coach who got fired a couple of years ago from a very big time program. And now he's coaching in a smaller university and he's building his way back. And it was interesting what, what he said. Uh, he's been gone a couple of years and they asked him, what did you think of your time at that school? And he said, I think that, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about it. It didn't go well at the end for you there, you know. In my time there, he says, there's a lot of things I look back on and say, boy, I wish I'd done this different. I wish I did this better. And then he said, sometimes the toughest pills that you have to swallow end up being the ones that make you better at the end of the day. And I envision that being the case in my future. Wow. That, now that is a guy who actually has come to terms with some of the feedback he received. And he wants to improve and get better. That's amazing. Years ago, I remember sitting in a ministry workshop for pastors and um, the presenter was a seasoned veteran of ministry. And what he was presenting actually was, it rocked my world because it was, I had been, not nothing immoral or wrong or anything like that, but it's just my, my, my kind of direction in one particular area was actually kind of wrongheaded. And it's like, I'm sitting there thinking, if, if I listen to this guy, then I would have to change some things that I'm doing. Again, nothing, no moral issues or anything, just an approach. And this is going to take a lot of work. And I sat there and finally said, okay, <laughs> if that's what it means, that's what it means. And it was a tough pill to swallow, but I did. And I was better for it. I, I believe ministry is better for it in my life. You know, we see here that an unwillingness to ever be corrected is short-sighted. We can always learn from constructive feedback and correction. I'm not talking about compromising on the majors. I'm referring to having an open mind and open heart for personal growth. And we need Jesus to pull this off. Okay, that's the first one, all right? Are you going to be self-aware and teachable or defensive and short-sighted? Second contrast. Better to be disregarded yet have a servant than to act important but have no food. <laughs> This is a contrast between the millionaire next door and the guy who's trying to impress you so much. The millionaire next door, nobody pays attention to him. Nobody even knows he's a millionaire. He quietly goes about his business. He got someone, yeah, someone takes care of his lawn, but he's not crowing about his success. Isn't it about posting about his wealth constantly? He's confident, but he's authentically humble. And the contrast is the braggart, the name dropper, who has to act important. He's a showboat. He's flexing on social all the time. But in reality, he's broke, behind on the rent, and a hot mess generally. That's the contrast here. You know, in nature, God has given animals some 
defense mechanisms and things that protect them in the wild. One of them, one of the animals I love is the puffer fish. Here's the puffer fish. He's actually a pretty small fish in most cases, fit in the palm of your hand. But you know what? He can, he can take in all the seawater and he just blows up really big and he looks super impressive and important. And in nature, that's okay because that keeps him alive. But there's folks that kind of puffer fish it. They're just like, look how big and important I am. But actually, they have no food that they are really not doing well, but they want everybody to think otherwise. There's another animal in the wild, and he is known as the howler monkey. And I want you to listen to this little monkey for about five or 10 seconds. Check it out. Wow, he's not a big monkey. But he sounds big. He sounds like he's a threat. And God gave him that to, do, to, to be able to protect him because he's not really very big. But in the spiritual realm, we don't want to be puffer fish and howler monkeys. Puffing ourselves up to make a, our other, everybody impressed when we're actually broken. Speaking of puffer fish and howler monkeys, in the spiritual realm, the scribes and Pharisees were the spirituality all-stars of their day and the hotshots who loved impressing people. But Jesus called them out and warned his disciples, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses, that is, they pick on poor people, and they say long prayers just for show. They're hollow and they're evil. Let's not do the humble brag. Let's be quiet about our generosity. Let's not flaunt our spirituality. Let's not trying to impress people with our business success or, or your parenting expertise or your physique or your brains or whatever. Just be you and let people figure out who you are. It's better just to be humbly going about doing your thing. Here's the principle at work here, guys. Content to be quietly successful or focus on impressing others. That, that's it. This is, don't give an enemy, the enemy a seat at your table thinking that I've got to somehow impress all the people around me. No, God loves you and he accepts you as you are and you don't need to impress other people. Just follow Jesus. I read a, a, a while back about Leonard Bernstein, the late legendary conductor of the New York Philharmonic, and he gave an insightful inter answer in an informal interview. Uh, one admirer asked him, Mr. Bernstein, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And immediately he said, second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, he said, but to find one who plays second violin with as much as enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. Wow. That is profound wisdom in the maestro's words. Jesus, he actually played the ultimate second fiddle in God's symphony of grace. Humility became the main theme of his life. Paul could write to us, be like Jesus. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. Um, 
Jesus took this whole idea to a whole new level. Um, when he said, he, he called his disciples together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So be content to be quietly successful, truly, authentically humble, and don't worry about impressing others. Don't let pride, don't give the enemy a seat at your table through pride. Third contrast, a fool's displeasure is known at once, but whoever ignores an insult is sensible. Here's a contrast between somebody who is instantly triggered. <laughs> That's what this really means. It's just like they're offended and they show their displeasure immediately. Everything's offensive. They're so touchy about everything. They're, they're overly sensitive. But the contrast is whoever ignores an insult is sensible is practically wise, patiently holding your peace instead of being instantly triggered. So he's saying, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. You've got a choice between being easily offended and overly sensitive all the time or choosing to be gracious and forgiving as the Lord has forgiven us. You know, let's admit it. A lot of folks are pretty touchy these days, and sometimes we can fall into that. We live in a highly sensitive, easily offended culture. Everybody wants to be totally affirmed in everything. Real life doesn't work that way, guys. Real wisdom doesn't grow that way. I'm not saying there are no legitimate complaints or that there are no injustices, and I'm not saying there are no times when you push back. Sometimes that is necessary. Read the whole book of Proverbs for perspective and you'll gain the whole counsel of God there. But we cannot constantly be getting triggered about things that offend us. We, can show our, or we can't show our irritation all the time immediately and then go looking for allies to back up our being offended. We can't, we, we, we can't, we can choose if we want to, I guess, to post every time we disagree with someone. That is giving an enemy a seat at your table when you've always got to show your displeasure immediately. The way of Jesus is countercultural. He says, whoever ignores an insult is sensible. Jesus says, in, uh, or Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Or the message prayer phrase puts it this way. Love isn't always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Now, I get it. There are a lot of trolls out there. There are a lot of people yanking your chain. People are slinging mud and they're dishing dirt all the time. But whoever ignores an insult is sensible. Here's the wisdom. Not all the time, but most of the time. You can. Let it go. Let it go, Right? The storm rages on, the cold never bothered me anyway, right? You can just let it go. Lots of times, in fact, that's the sensible thing to do. That's how you have community. 
That's how you have a family. You, you just can't constantly be irritated with the shortcomings of others because bro or sister, you got your own shortcomings. And so do I, we all do. We have to, you know, just let some, a lot of stuff slide. Doesn't mean we never have conversations when we need to talk. Okay, I get it. But we can't just always be mad at each other. You know, I remember when I was a young pastor in my first church, and I was just talking about, you know, this happened, and this person said this, and I was just, you know, kind of taking the arrows of leadership. And he told me very bluntly, Quentin, you need to grow a thicker skin. Not what I wanted to hear. What I wanted to hear is, oh, poor you, that's so hard. And he's like, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. You're a leader. Grow a thicker skin. Proverbs says in another place, a person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to overlook an offense. Now, there's time for and place for honest conversation and even confrontation. But, but insight here says can help us to see the situation more for what it really is. Give us patience toward that insufferable person in our lives. And he says here, it's virtuous to overlook an offense. Or another translation says, it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Why? Because that's like Jesus. Can you imagine how many sins God overlooks in our lives? I mean, seriously. <laughs> I mean, how many did he just let go? It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about them. But he doesn't immediately bring down the hammer. No. He's long-suffering. He's forgiving. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Wow. So I'm to be like Jesus. Sure, you know, it, 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 there's, there's, give us patience toward insufferable people. It is a sign of immaturity to get all bothered and huffy every time someone offends you. If we're constantly snippy-snarly, and miffed and snarky, Proverbs tells us, Solomon tells us, grow up. This is not maturity. Be a grown-up. A major sign of adulting is to take the high road and not return uh, your displeasure at one at the moment you're irritated. Don't take the bait in an argument. Don't sling back the insult. And the next time someone does that to you, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Be a big person. Somebody said, you don't always have to tell your side of the story. Time will. Because God is always in control. He really is. We can risk showing grace to people and extending forgiveness. Fourth contrast, verse 23 of Proverbs 12. A shrewd person conceals knowledge, but a foolish heart publicizes stupidity. Wow. Okay, we're getting straight talk from Solomon, aren't we? Here is, don't give the enemy a seat at your table moment. I can choose, you can choose to be either thoughtful and discreet in my interactions, conversations, or consistently venting and oversharing with no filter. <laughs> There's wisdom and there's foolishness. There's, there's, there's just insightful and just shallow. One Christian leader said it this way recently. 
Guard your heart out there. A shrewd person conceals knowledge. Doesn't mean they're hiding things from you that are like things that are wrong that they're doing. A shrewd person, what it's saying here is they're smart about it. They have some street smarts. They understand relationships and how they work. And somebody who has enough insight that they've gathered sometimes says, you know, I don't need to share every last thing <laughs> um, with everybody. I don't have to share my opinion every single time. One Christian leader said it this way, guard your heart out there. All people are love worthy, but not all people are trustworthy. And she, this Christian leader said, authenticity with all, transparency with most, intimacy with some. A shrewd person, understanding the ways of God and the ways of people, conceals knowledge, doesn't have to blurt every last thing out. I don't have to tell everyone everything I know and feel and think. We are allowed time to process or even time to be silent. That's perfectly allowable. The foolish heart, on the contrast, a foolish heart publicizes stupidity. They're posting constantly whatever they're thinking about everything, or they're just blurting out stuff. No filter. Passes on what they last heard. Gloms onto conspiracy theories and states them as facts. Constantly venting about this and that. Oversharing about the latest fad and trend. Whatever. A leader I respect a few years back said, he was, we were talking about a situation, and he said, this person struggles with a, a new concept for them. And that new concept is an unexpressed thought. That is, just because it enters your mind doesn't mean it has to leave your mouth. It can just stay there. You can just not say anything. And that's allowed. You can conceal what you know. We're not talking about hiding the gospel. We're not talking about telling lies. We're just saying you don't have to dump all your stuff and back up the dump truck every time on whoever is there. It, and but, but guys, because, besides guys, it's just exhausting. Everybody expressing their opinions on every topic all the time. And they're 100% certain they're right. You can't, that, that's, you have no community that way, guys. Not in the Christian community and even beyond. And as I look at the whole of Proverbs, it seems to me that there are two mistakes that we make in today's culture. The first mistake is that there are no gray areas at all. The second mistake is that there is no black and white. The wisdom of God is there are gray areas and there is black and white. And so the wisdom of God here is don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out and I don't have to give my opinion every time about everything. I don't have to publicize every thought I have. These are just great concepts. Fifth contrast for not giving the enemy a seat at your table is anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good word cheers it up. This is a different sort of contrast. It's not good versus bad, but rather it's problem and solution, disease and cure, poison and antidote. The Bible is brutally realistic. The Bible states as an absolute fact, anxiety weighs us down. It does. And guys, we're seeing it all around us. I certainly have as a pastor. 
and researchers and other pastors and counselors and medical professionals and teachers and all sorts of folks are all confirming that there has been a skyrocketing of anxieties in the last three years in particular. I went read one research article that said anxiety had grown, clinically speaking, 270% since 2020. Wow. And that, 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 is, that is alarming. And with that anxiety, all the other accompanying effects of it, depression and pain and sickness and sleeping problems and weight gain and weight loss and eating disorders and marriage and family issues and substance abuse and relationship strains and financial stress, and the list goes on and on. Now, here's the good news. The Bible says anxiety is real. Anxiety weighs us down. He's not saying you're bad if you have anxiety. He's just saying, yeah, that's, it does. It has an impact. So he says, and a good word cheers it up. So the, what, what we're saying is don't give the enemy a seat at your table. The, the principle here is we can choose to either deny the impact of anxiety and says, no, it doesn't weigh me down. Or we can say, yeah, it does. And I can connect to sources for help. Um, I love it. Proverbs is not telling us in this verse. This verse has often been misunderstood. It isn't telling us, cheer up. Things could be worse. And sure enough, I cheered up and things got worse. You know, it's not saying that. It's telling us to accept our limits as human beings. It's okay and understandable that you are sometimes anxious. I am too. You are not a bad person. You are a human being. Welcome to the normal club. It weighs you down. One of the greatest people in the Old Testament was Elijah the prophet. And I encourage you to go there and read his whole story in 1 Kings. But, I mean, the guy was amazing. He did all sorts of miracles and, and he took on King Ahab and Jezebel. And he had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And they had the two altars and they prayed for hours and the fire never fell. Elijah prays for like 10 seconds and the fire falls from, from, um, from heaven and consumes the altar and he wins this contest with Baal and ends up executing judgment on, on all these false prophets. Cleared them out. That's it. They're over. And he's kind of had this, he's on spiritually on top of this mountain, literally Mount Carmel. And then Jezebel threatens him and he just falls to pieces. Just falls to pieces. And he says, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. I'm going to take care of this guy. I'm going I'm to I'm take him out. And then it says in, in um, 1 Kings uh, 18, 19, excuse me. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. And then he said, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. He's running for his life, and then he says, God, kill me. Doesn't make any, he's just worn out because he's a human being, even though he's a prophet of God. And he just, it says, then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. He just all tuckered out. He just had it. So much pressure on his, in leadership. Suddenly an angel touched him, it says. The angel told him, get up and eat. You know, sometimes it's just a physical issue, literally. It's just a physical issue. Then he looked and there at his head was a loaf of baked bread over hot stones and a jug of water. God knew that Elijah didn't need a lecture. Get with it. You're a prophet. Come on, man. Snap out of it. 
He needed something to eat. He needed nourishment, physical sustenance. And so he ate and drank and lay down again. He, got, he needed sleep. He was just worn out. The angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. It's just been hard. You've, you've had this hard, can you relate? You just had this long, hard run. And yeah, you've had some victories, but it's been tough. I mean, you've faced off all sorts of things, and that's so hard. And it says that on the strength of that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to horror of the mountain of God. He entered a cave and there, spent the night, he got some more rest. He spent some time with God. He needed a break. God gave him a break. He was replenished, restored. And then you could read the rest of it. God shows up and he, he, there's all sorts of spectacular, uh, you know, effects, special effects that God brings. But finally, God speaks to him in a still small voice. And then he's, he's going to talk with Elijah. And there's a res restoration of him. He did nothing wrong. He did done everything right, actually. But anxiety weighs him down. Anxiety had weighed him down. And he just had hit, hit a wall. And guess what? If that's you, it's not that you're a bad person. It's that you're a human being. Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down. There's absolutely, we are just limited. We are not, we don't have all power. We do not have limitless energy. We are human beings and we are frail as, and we, were, we are dust, you know? We're vapor and God loves us. Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good word cheers it up. The proverb have often been misunderstood as basically saying, don't worry, be happy. But that's not what it's saying here, guys. Instead, accept the reality that anxiety affects you. It's okay. God wants you to share that with him. He, he can help. And, and it's okay to be tired. It's okay to be depressed. It's not fun, it's not, you don't want that, I don't want that, but you know, it's, it's understandable, totally. And sometimes when people have read a good word cheers it up, they think, oh, you know, snap out of it. But, or hey, just be happy, it's okay. And guys, there's proverbs that actually say, you know, somebody who, who sings songs to a heavy heart, mm -mm. it's like, it's just like toxic to them. You can be too happy talk with people. Here's the principle. There's a difference between a good word. Let's put this up here. There's a difference between a good word and a pep talk. <laughs> There's a difference between them. So I love, like we're part of a life group, Ruth and I, and, and we love it. And it's just so good to be able to go there and talk to people and just, hey, hey, what's going on in your life? And we encourage one another because guess what? Life is challenging sometimes. So what this pr proverb is saying is a good word could make all the difference. Where are you going to hear a good word? Well, I'll tell you. Here's some good word sources that might help. Um, certainly. You know, read the scriptures. Read the Psalms and the heartache of David. Read the Gospels and the love of Jesus. Talk with a friend about what you're going through. Be vulnerable enough to let somebody in. 
to the circle. Talk to one of our pastoral counselors here at Valley. Connect with your life group or let us know somehow. See a doctor. Maybe there's some physical stuff that you haven't even thought of. I oftentimes tell people the first step is to go see a, a medical professional. Um, make an appointment with a professional counselor, perhaps. Make prayer a daily conversation. And certainly prioritize your attendance at weekly worship because these moments are good words. We need that every seven day Sabbath refilling, refreshing shot in the arm that says, okay, I'm not alone. God cares. He's here for me. You need that. I need that. We all need that. And there's no condemnation. There's no like, well, can I shape up? There's like, hey, join the, join the normal club. If, if, that, if, if you're struggling with that right now, I want to just encourage you. Um, on your community card or online, you can send us a note. But um, the community card you get weekly at Valley, you can just put a star there and just say, or put a star or send us, hey, um, I, I'd love some resources about anxiety. We're, we're launching some anxiety support groups. We've had different things in the past, but we're, we're launching some new ones. Um, there's some great resources. We would love to email that to you. So just send us your name uh, with your email and we will get uh, you some great resources. And if you need um, an appointment with a, with a counselor, or you need a referral, whatever it might be, we are totally here for you. We love you. We care about you. And like the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, you're in the same club, so you're good. You know what? And, I, and I'm, I'm just longing for that good word to, to, to bring some hope into your life. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table by saying, there's no hope, I can't go there. Um, God doesn't care about me. The church doesn't care. No, no. Don't give those thoughts a place at your table. Instead, sit down with Jesus, who's prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies, and say, I need help. We all do at times. Every single one of us can relate to this verse. Every single one of us. All right? Grand finale truth, verse 28 of chapter 12. There is life in the path of righteousness, and in its path there is no death. There's a, there's a way that God has laid out for us. It's Jesus. It's coming to believe in him and trust in him and his finished work on the cross to take all of our burdens and sins and all of that upon himself. All of our wrongdoing, all the things that matter, he, he, he takes the, our place on the cross and he takes it all away and he, in exchange. He gives us his righteousness and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. That's why it says there's life in the path of righteousness and in its path there is no death doesn't mean you're never going to die. We're, we're all going to die unless the Lord returns before. But there's life there in the path of righteousness. That's where the life is. It's not by giving the enemy a seat at your table. There's life at the table of Jesus. He prepares for you. So here's the principle. In all the dangers and difficulties of life, and there are many, God's path is ultimately life-giving. Don't believe the lies that, you know, there, there's a better way. Don't give in to that temptation. Don't, don't, don't collapse and, and, and just uh, completely surrender to discouragement. Instead, hang on to Jesus. Follow him. 
And if you don't have the strength, hang on to some other people and hang on to Jesus. He'll hang on to you, absolutely. Draw near to him, he'll be right there. In all the chaos, anxiety, opinions, and polarization, the arrogance, the anger of our culture, and the everyday stresses of my life and yours, do not give the enemy a seat at your table. Instead, trust the shepherd who prepares a table before your enemies. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you it's going to be worth it. There is life in the path of righteousness, and in its path there is no death. So if for the first time in your life you want to trust in Jesus and give him all your cares and concerns and all your sins and failures, just tell us that, you know, let us know. I'm trusting in Jesus today. Uh, if, if, if you're here in person, just the community card, just put a cross there and say, I'm trusting in Jesus today. We would love to hear from you. Um, guys, uh, Ruth and I got a little bit of time away this winter and we went to California for a little bit. And um, during that time, we got to go to Joshua Tree National Park. Never been there. It's an amazing place. And there was a scenic overlook at one point. And uh, it was a bit of a distance. It was about maybe, yeah. 50 yards up there. And I asked Ruth, do you, want, do you want to try it? Because Ruth and her walker, it was very steep. And she said, yeah, I do. And so, so Ruth actually just has, puts her walker to the side and she takes hold of this rail and just sideways walks all the way up. For anybody else, it's like, you know, at the most a minute walk. But for Ruth, you know, this was... 15 minutes, going hand over hand slowly up, up, the, um, up, this, up this trail, very steep trail. She stopped um, about here in the, in the picture. She stopped about here, and there was a, there was a bench there. And, uh, and she said, you know, um, boy, this is pretty tiring. And I said, do you want to go to the very top? And she goes, you go up there and see if it's worth it. And... Um, so I went up there and I saw it and I came back here and I said, where you're seated right now is a seven. That's a 10 up there. And she said, okay, let's do it. So she walked the rest of the way up. I mean, and people are coming alongside of her and cheering for her. They're saying, you go girl, that's amazing. We got to the top and uh, let's go actually to that scenic view. We got to the top and, and we just saw this amazing overlook. And um, there is life in the path of righteousness. And in its path, there is no death. It's worth it to, to keep going strong, you know. And then Ruth amazingly came around the other way. This, all, this whole thing took, took, took an hour, um, you know. For fully abled people, it's, it's, it's maybe five minutes. And our friend was there with her, and I took this picture, and she's smiling. Because she is the awesome Ruth Steve, after all. Um, Monday, guys, um, we go in for Ruth's six-month scans for her cancer. Um, she's cancer-free. And the doctors and we are expecting that those scans will be completely clear. That's what is anticipated. But no matter what, there's life in Jesus. He's with us always. No matter what, he's always with us. There is life in the path of righteousness. And in its path, there is no death.
Father, speak to anybody who hears this today. Show them the, the nugget that they needed to take away that, that, that powerfully would speak to them. And um, show them Jesus. And Lord, when we're tempted to give the enemy a seat at our table and go down that path, help us to instead go to the table that you prepared before us in the presence of our enemies and know that you're there right there for us every single moment. And everybody agreed and said, amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.